All right. Well, good morning. Hey, that was Isaiah 40, by the way, that we were reading and praying through, Isaiah 40. Uh, I'll go ahead and open your Bibles now, though, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you have Bibles, um, open to Deuteronomy 29. If you need Bibles, there's some on the chair there around you. If you are using those Bibles from the chair, either page 132, or if the Bible that you're using has a flame on it, page 171. Deuteronomy 29. Um, if you saw my email, and those of you that were here last week, you got a twofer. A two for one. Yeah, I preached two sermons last week on accident. Um, so if, if you didn't see the email, there are updated reading plans, because the previous reading plan, I was supposed to or intended to preach chapter 27 as one sermon, and then chapter 28 as another sermon. But I forgot to change that in my study notes, and so I prepped a sermon on both of those chapters and preached that last week. So, good for you for sitting through that, but now the reading plan is updated, and that puts us ending Deuteronomy a week earlier than intended, which is fine. So that's out there for you. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Um, when, we, when we tend to think about Old Testament, especially because the way we think about Old Testament, the word that typically most often characterizes Old Testament for us is law. And law is just simply one translation of the word Torah. But when we hear law, and part of this is due to Martin Luther, by the way, and, and the Protestant Reformation, because he was reacting so strongly um, to, the, to the Catholic Church which he was in, he made such a strong division between law and grace, and then since then what we have um, been influenced by is a, a very strong division between what we call our Old Testament and our New Testament, and we'll say law and grace, and we put those things opposed to one another. And we, we think about Old Testament... And we think law, and we think, well, that's legalism. Jesus came to set us free from the law, or Jesus came so, so that we wouldn't have to follow certain, certain things, right? We, we put those things so strongly opposed to one another, and I hope what you're seeing as we go through Deuteronomy is those things aren't as strongly opposed as we've probably thought, right? And so we hear law, and we think death. We hear law... Or we think Old Testament and we think restrictions and we think what we shouldn't be doing and we think um, dryness or deadness. But I want you to get from Deuteronomy, I hope that you've been hearing this, is it's life. God is about life. And the reason he gives his covenant to people and the reason he gives his laws or his Torah to people is so that they might have life. See, but we read it through the lens of just simply restrictions, what God doesn't want us to do, and he must be a God who wants us to, to not be happy, a God who wants us to not pursue the things that make us happy, and so we view it as death. And yet, what I hope that you're seeing as we go through Deuteronomy is the very fact that God has revealed himself to his people and has taught them who he is and what it looks like to live in a relationship with him is so that his people might have life. God is about giving life where there's been death because God did not create death. Death is not God's doing. You, you understand that? Death is not God's creation. Death is a result of rebellion against God. Okay? And so then when God reveals himself, 
He is revealing himself so that his creation might know who he is. And then when he reveals how he wants his creation to live and the things that they should avoid, it's so that they know how to have and experience life and life to the fullest. And so as we go through Deuteronomy 29 this morning, Moses is calling these people that he's giving this sermon to. Remember, there was a previous generation. There was a previous generation who came out of Egypt, saw all the signs and wonders that God had done in Egypt. And he walked them through the the sea, right, and, and parted the waters, and then he caused those waters to fall down on the Egyptian people while the people of Israel came across. But that same generation failed to believe God. That same generation, when they were standing on the cusp of entering into the land that God promised, they went into the land from spies, 12, one from each tribe, and 10 out of 12 came back and said, there's giants, there's Nephilim, there's descendants of Nephilim in this land, and we are but like grasshoppers to them. They feared, even though God said, go in and take this land I'm giving you. There was disobedience. Because of that, they wandered for 40 years. All of this is coming up today in this chapter. They wandered for 40 years until that generation who failed to obey God because they failed to believe God. They failed to obey God because they failed to believe God. To disbelieve God is to disobey God. Okay? And so they wandered in the wilderness because they're not going to enter the land. Every one of that generation who was 20 and above would die in the wilderness. And that's happened as we're working our way through Deuteronomy. That has happened. And so what Moses is now doing is he's taking this new generation. Many of them would have been born in the wilderness. The oldest among them might have been a young child on the way out of Egypt. So they maybe, maybe they might have some faint memory of what God had done for them in Egypt. But surely many of them, as they were born in the wilderness, they experienced God's providing manna from heaven bringing quail so they'd have meat, water from rocks, and all of them that stood with Moses on this this day that we're about to look at had been around when they went through the battles against the kings uh, in the land of Bashan. These were spiritual battles. These These were opportunities where God was bringing his people through an area that was ruled by darkness ruled by other spiritual beings who were in rebellion against God, and God himself, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was overcoming all of that. And so now on this day, as we look at this chapter, this is the call to commitment. This is where Moses is going to remind the people that God intends life for you. He does not intend death for you. Death is an option, but it's not what God intends for you. He intends life, and here's how you experience life. And so as we go through it, here's what I'm working with this morning. Keeping covenant with Yahweh. Again, YHWH, that's a translation of the name of God as he's revealed himself to Moses and then continued to reveal himself uh, in this way. YHWH, we oftentimes will pronounce it as Yahweh. There's a few other possible translations we really don't know, but Yahweh. Okay, so I'm, I'm very specifically using that again this morning because we're talking about covenant. This is the name he gives when he keeps his covenant. This is the name he gives when he makes his covenant. And so when we keep covenant with Yahweh, that's how we experience life. Keeping 
his covenant. Keeping covenant with Yahweh is how we experience life. Well, let's walk through this. So in the two for last week, the two for one sermon last week, we had a lot of blessings and a lot of curses. We had a lot of, if you obey in the land, this is what you will experience. If you disobey in the land, you can expect this, right? And so verse one is looking back on all of that. Verse one is looking back. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. Okay, so here's what's going on. There was a covenant made at Mount Sinai, or Deuteronomy calls it Mount Horeb, right? That covenant, it, there's not a new covenant being made with the people now. It's just being a, a, amended, if you will, right? And so that covenant that was made in the past at the mount, mountain, Mount Horeb, that was made with the previous generation. Now you've got a new generation, that covenant that was made at the mountain included a lot of things that would help them um, um, live in the context of that relationship, but they were in the wilderness. So now what does it look like as they go into the land? And so some of what's being uh, amended in this covenant, not changed, but just adjusted for here's what it's going to look like when you finally get to cultivate ground and have crops. See, when they wandered in the wilderness, they had no need for, for understanding what they should do when they cultivated crops because they weren't doing that. But when they get in the land, they will. So there's things like that that's being, being explained, but Moses is looking back on chapters 27 and 28, and he's saying, these are the words of the covenant. These are the words of the covenant besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. So he's saying, this is their new generation, and I'm making this covenant with you today. I'm recommitting myself to you, and Moses is going to call them to recommit to him, to Yahweh. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 2, Moses summoned all Israel. And he said to them, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. We're going we're gonna to pause right there. We'll pick up verse five in just a moment. Moses is first reminding them of their history of how God has redeemed them, how he has acted on their behalf, being faithful to keep his promises. So backtrack a little bit. You go back to the book of Genesis. One of the things you see in Genesis chapter 12 is God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. And, and, and through that covenant, he says, I'm going to give you descendants. They're going to be as numerous as the stars, if you can even count them. And I'm going to give you a place for these descendants to dwell. There's going to be some land. And then he says, through, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so building on that covenant, um, when, when Abraham had his son Isaac, the covenant was passed to him. When Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, the covenant was passed to Jacob, who was the younger twin, which I really like because I'm the younger twin in my relationship with my brother. And I have reminded him of that over the years. And that God favors the younger. Okay? Um, so, so then it was passed on to Jacob. Jacob was then given the name Israel. He had sons. Those sons become many of the tribes that we, we call Israel today. Right? So the, the covenant's being passed down. Well, Jacob ended up in Egypt at the end of Genesis. Right? Joseph, one of his sons, had been elevated to second in command. And so through Joseph, uh, God was going to preserve the people through a famine. That's how they got to Egypt, and they were treated kindly because of Joseph. Book of Exodus opens up and says, now a Pharaoh rose up in the land that did not know Joseph, did not remember Joseph, and he was threatened by the people. 
He was threatened by the people of Israel. And so that's when they became enslaved. For, for some 400 years, they're now enslaved in Egypt and they're used for labor, forced labor, right? And, and so they're crying out. And this is where, where Moses is referring back to when God acted on their behalf, when he heard their cry and he comes and he judges the Egyptians with the 10 plagues. Each of those plagues was a judgment on an Egyptian God. Each of those plagues was a judgment on an Egyptian God, and increasingly so. With each plague that, that, that God brought upon the people of Israel, he was, um, on Egypt, he was showing the people of Egypt, I'm greater than this God that you worship. Right? I'm greater than this God. So take, for instance, there was one where the sun was darkened, except for in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel dwelled. And so what was being communicated there is the sun god whom they worship and whom Pharaoh was responsible for, for making sure there was sunlight. What Yahweh was doing at that moment, he's saying, no, I reign above the sun and I can darken places and I can leave it light in other places. And the Egyptians were seeing it's the God of the people of Israel who rules and reigns over the sun, not our sun god, Ra. Right? So each of the, the plagues was a judgment on an Egyptian god, and it was showing the people of Egypt that the god of Israel, Yahweh, is the one who reigns above all. It was showing the people of Israel that this god who has made covenant with, with Abraham is going to be faithful to keep his covenant, and he is going to overcome all of the obstacles that lie in their way. And Moses reminds them of this. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Signs and wonders, mighty works of God, overcoming darkness. You've seen what he did to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. And then we get verse four. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now our English translation, I hate doing this to you, by the way. I try not to do this. But when it's helpful and pertinent to understand, I want to do this. I never want to undermine your English translations, but I always want to remind you that our English translations are just that. They're translations. They're not perfect. When we just talk about the Word of God being without error, we do not mean your translations. We mean the one that was actually written by the original author. Okay? And so then in the process of translation, in the process of copying, we know that things can get confused or get messed up. We know a lot of the ways that that happens and we're able to catch a lot of them. And, and the things that oftentimes do, it doesn't affect anything major in our doctrine. It might affect maybe some small details. It might be just simple misspellings. There's, there's different kinds, right? But sometimes with a translation too, what we run into is there are things in the original language, in this case Hebrew, there's nuances or there's, there's a different way of translating it that, that if you translate it one way in English, it means one thing. If you translate it another way in English, it means another. And it does affect the way we understand something. So, for instance, in this translation, the ESV, but to this day, well, that's nebulous. And what most of us probably read that mean, we'd probably read it like this, and we might say this, but still to this day, you, God has not given you. We, would, we, we probably would tend to read it more that way just because of, of, of how we tend to think and speak, but to this day, even to this day, you have it. And yet, in the Hebrew, based on where the words are placed, and based on how the phrase can be translated, it could also be done like this, 
but until this day, the Lord has not given you. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear until now, until this day, okay? That changes some things, right? Because if I read this and I, and I assume that it means he's still hardening your heart, then I've got some problems with what follows. It makes it a little more difficult for me to understand, well, what's the point here, God? But if I, if I understand this, and I think the Hebrew allows it, if I understand this, that until now, God had not given you a heart to understand, but he is now, then it changes the way I start to understand what's taking place. There was a generation before this generation who did not understand. There was an entire generation of people who saw the signs and wonders, what God did for his people in Egypt, and they came out and they were living based on the protection and the provision of God. And they still did not understand. And yet now, what Moses is saying, but today, understanding is being given as he's making a covenant with them. All right, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Even though, that previous generation, even though they had seen the signs, they had seen the wonders, they had seen the miracles, even though they had actually heard the audible voice of God from Mount Sinai, they still lacked understanding. It is entirely possible, and it happens far too often, it is entirely possible to hear God we might say here, the word of God, to experience things from God, signs, wonders, miracles, healings. You might see that in other people's lives. You might see miraculous provision. It is entirely possible to hear from him, his word, to read it, to, to even know it, to memorize it. It is entirely possible to have experiences and yet still not understand. It's entirely possible, and it happened to an entire generation of Israelites who wandered in the desert. I want to show you a few things here. This verse here, we're, we're camping here for a moment because it gets brought up quite a bit. Galatians chapter 3, I think this is what Paul, now the Apostle Paul, thoroughly Hebrew, trained by the best of the best of Hebrew scholars. He knew the, 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 the Torah. He knew what we would call the Old Testament, inside and out. And he was zealous for it. And then he had a moment on a road when he was going to persecute believers in Jesus where Jesus revealed himself to him. And, and then Paul's paradigm shifted. He had to withdraw, go back and look at all that he knew all that he had studied, and now he had to understand it in light of the new revelation of God to him about Jesus being the Messiah, raising from the dead. Okay? And so then, now he's teaching these churches this, and he comes to this church, there's this church in, in a town called Galatia, who's, who's got some teachers who have come along, and one of the things that they're teaching these believers is that um, males have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So Paul's reacting against that. The other thing they're teaching is that you have to obey the Torah, the law, in order to be saved. Okay? So he's reacting against that. And here's what he says in, in chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
And here's verse two where he draws back on Deuteronomy 29, verse four. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And we'll come back to that in a moment. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so verse two, when Paul says works of the law, that phrase for Paul means obeying the law, obeying the letter of the law, obeying it outwardly, but with an intent to establish your own spiritual standing before God. An attempt to obey the works of the law, do the works of the law in such a way that you can then be saved. To obey the law, to obey or do the works of the law in order to receive life. Okay, what's behind this is to obey the law, the Torah, while lacking understanding, while lacking ears to hear and eyes to see. He says, did you receive the Spirit? Now, the Holy Spirit was a promise that was given to believers. The Holy Spirit is given to us when we come to faith in Jesus, when we come under the covenant of God. And Paul says, did you receive that Spirit because you were obeying the works of the law? Is that why God gave it to you? Or did you receive the Spirit because of hearing with faith? Now, we've talked a lot about in Hebrew, the word Shema means hear, right? We would say the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To hear is not about content. It's about taking the content that comes into your ears and then acting on it, living it out, right? It's about obeying. It's about living out what you now know to be true. Paul's thoroughly Hebrew, Paul's more influenced by the Old Testament scriptures and the Hebrew culture than he is by the Greek culture. When Paul says hearing, uh, did you receive the spirit by hearing with faith? I think it's entirely reasonable to assume that Paul meant was the type of hearing that we read about in Deuteronomy. The type of hearing that takes the content of God's word, of God's revelation, and then you respond to it in faithful allegiance and faithful obedience. And so to hear is to respond to God's word in obedience and then coupled with faith. So the type of faith or the type of obedience that is fueled by faith. Okay, Paul talks about this in Romans. He's, he's, his mission is to lead, bring the Gentiles to an obedience of faith. Right? It's the type of obedience that comes from a place of faith. So if he's saying that, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's drawing back on Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, to this day. So until now, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It is the person who does not have a heart to understand, eyes to see or ears to hear, that attempts to do the works of the law apart from faith. It is the person who does not have eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand, that attempts to obey the works of the law apart from faith. They're trying to obey God from a place that lacks understanding, lacks faith. That's legalism. 
That's legalism. When you attempt to obey God in order to establish your own spiritual standing, to, to be accepted in by him apart from faith. James says the same thing. Faith without works is a dead faith. Right? And he's not telling us that you must have faith plus something. He's saying if your faith that you claim to have does not produce the works of obedience to God, your faith is a dead faith. Okay? And so Paul and, and James do not contradict themselves. They do not contradict. They just say things in different ways. And so Paul goes on and he says, okay, no, the assumption is you received the Spirit because you heard the Word of God and you responded with faith. So now are you so foolish? So having been brought into the covenant, having embraced the covenant of God, having been saved, now you're trying to, once again, do the works of the law apart from the Spirit. You're trying to obey God, and now you're lacking understanding once again because you're trying to establish your spiritual maturity, your spiritual standing by doing things, and yet you lack the understanding of why those things are even done. And so it's possible to start out by the Spirit, by hearing with faith, and then to get sidetracked and to live our lives as if we earned it all and as if it all depends upon me, right? And so that's what Paul's going after here. Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit, God, when he gives the Spirit, does he do it because of works? Uh, does he, do you, uh, does he give you the spirit and works miracles among you because of the works of the law? In other words, can my obedience to God from a place that lacks understanding, from a place that lacks faith, can my obedience provoke God to perform signs, wonders, and miracles among me? And Paul says that's not why he was doing it. He was instead responding to faith. He was instead responding to hearing by it's entirely possible for people to hear the word of God, to know the word of God, to have experiences with God's signs, miracles, wonders, and still lack understanding. Because here again, Paul, in the letter to the Romans, as he's, he's trying to help people understand well, what's God's plan with the people of Israel. Because in Romans, and we went through Romans a, a couple years ago now, but when we went through it, one of the things we talked about was one of the questions that could come up is if God is a faithful and a covenant-keeping God, then what do we say about his people Israel, right? And so chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses that, but he comes to this point having said in chapter 11, verse 1, God's not forsaken his people, meaning ethnic descendants of, of Israel. He's also already told us in chapter 9 that not everybody who's Israel is Israel. In other words... Just because someone is an ethnic descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a Jew by birth, doesn't mean they're part of God's people, Israel. Okay? Israel is not just a nation. Like we might think of China, Ukraine, Russia. I'm avoiding the United States because we've got so much diversity. Um, it's not just a nation of people. It's a theological construct. It's a people with whom God has made a covenant. Because even throughout Deuteronomy, we see that there's not just ethnic Jews, right? Not just ethnic Israelites, that anyone from other nations are welcomed into the people of Israel if they will embrace the worship of, the, of Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, and keep his covenant. Therefore, anyone from the outside comes in and, and becomes part of Israel. 
But Paul here says, what then? God surely hasn't failed. Paul used himself as an example. He was an ethnic Israelite who believed in Jesus, the Messiah. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 29.4, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. It's entirely possible to be a people who receives the covenants of God, who from you the very Messiah comes out, right? The very Messiah is born to your people. You have promises. You have covenants. You've seen signs and wonders as God has guarded and protected your people. It's entirely possible to be in that close proximity to the things of God and to God himself and still not be able to see, not be able to hear, and to not understand. In case it's not clear, it's entirely possible to attend church your entire life, to know the scriptures inside and out, to have had experiences where maybe you even experienced a healing of some kind. Maybe you know someone who did. You, you've had God, you've seen some, some miraculous provision for you. It's entirely possible to experience all of that and still not understand, and still lack faith. It's gonna come up again, but it seems good to do this now. I forgot to put a slide there, but Matthew chapter seven, verse 22. Obviously, Jesus knew this, these verses. Matthew chapter seven, verse 22. 21 is where I'll start, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's entirely possible to do miracles in the name of Jesus, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and yet still get to that day, and Jesus says, I never knew you, but Jesus, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I, I saw people healed in your name. I never knew you depart from me. It's entirely possible. I hope you're getting the weight of what, what Moses is ultimately saying in Deuteronomy. Until this day, you did not have ears to hear or eyes to see. But now he's going to go on in chapter 5, and we need to keep moving here. Uh, chapter 29, back in Deuteronomy, verse 5, and he's going to help them understand what it looks like to understand. He's going to show them what it looks like to now understand all these things. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. What does it look like to understand all these things? He reminds them, you were led in the wilderness. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your, your sandals didn't wear out. Um, when he says you, did, you had not bread or strong drink, those would have been staples for living. 
They didn't have those things. Instead, they were sustained by the manna from heaven, the quail that God brought in, and the water from the rock, or the water that he took that was bitter and he made it sweet for drinking. They were sustained all those years. Why did they do that? Here's the understanding. Why does all of those things happen? Why does God do all of those things? Verse 6, that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. That's why he was doing those things. And the people before them, the generation before them, they did not understand this. They did not understand that the things that God was doing was to establish that he was Yahweh their God. They missed it. And now, to that day, up until this day, they didn't have understanding. But today, he's explaining to them, this is why I've done these things. Seven, when you came to this place, he talks about Sihon and Og. These were well-known kings in, the, in this region that they're passing through, an area called Bashan, known for darkness, spiritual darkness, known as the place of the dead, known where Rephaim lived, which would be a belief that there were dead spirits who went to live there. The king Og was a known giant who had a bed of at least 13 feet long. Giants are related to Nephilim, Genesis 6, chapter 1 through 4. These were not merely physical battles. These were spiritual battles in which the God, the creator God, was claiming his kingdom here on earth again. And he was doing that through his people. As they would come up to, the, to Og and Sion, he would, they would get victory because God would fight for them. And they experienced all this. And so he's reminding them, you've experienced all these things. It was so that you would know that Yahweh is your God. All those lands that used to belong to darkness and were ruled over by other spiritual beings, we've now given to our people who worship Yahweh. And look at verse 9. The conclusion is, therefore, in light of all this, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. What does it look like to have understanding? You do what God instructs you to do. Obedience, obedience is what comes from understanding. Understanding doesn't release me from obedience. It's what fuels my obedience. But it fuels my obedience with a different motive now. I'm not obeying in order to be brought in. I'm not obeying in order to establish my own spiritual maturity and my own spiritual standing. I'm obeying because God has redeemed me. I've been brought into his covenant. Now I understand that he is the one true God. I respond by saying, how should I live in a relationship with you? Obedience. I follow his instructions, his Torah, right? That's the word. The word Torah can mean instruction. It can mean law. It includes a lot of different things. So that's what Moses is saying. The result of you having understanding is that you'll obey. Okay? We keep going. Verse 10. Verse 10. You're standing all of you before the Lord your God today. The heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making the sworn covenant. But with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. Okay, so this is the covenant renewal with this new generation. No one's left out. Many of the nations around Israel in that day, the covenant between them and their gods, little g, 
was made with the men. Women were left out, children used, sacrifices. And yet here Yahweh is making a covenant with everyone. It's not just the leaders, not just the heads of your tribes, not just the elders, not just your officers, not just the men, but your little ones, your wives, the sojourner. That's a foreigner. That's like a resident alien. That's someone who's from another nation who has come in. They're living among the people of Israel. And if they will embrace the covenant of God, if they will worship the one true God, they will come under the same covenant, experience the same blessings and curses. Nobody's left out. And then verse 14, he says, and just in case you didn't catch it, it's not just with you I'm making this, not just with you who are standing here today, but everyone who comes after you, every generation that comes after you, everyone who will embrace this covenant, I'm making it with them. I got to keep us moving. Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. All right, Moses reminds him, you've seen everything that God did in Egypt. Here's a caution. Again, it's entirely possible. Beware that there's someone among you who hears the words of of this covenant. Or there's a clan or a tribe. It could be an individual. It could be a group of people. And as they hear this, they turn away from Yahweh, their God, and they go and serve other gods, little g. They go and live in obedience to other gods, little g. Any time that a person forsakes worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, they are following after other gods. If you are an atheist and you claim to worship no God, you are following after other gods. You don't know that, you may not realize that, but you are being deceived by little g gods, spiritual beings who are in rebellion against God and who lead us away from him. So anytime I live my life in a way that goes against God and what he's revealed, I'm worshiping other gods, little g. I'm following after other gods, little g. That looks like immorality. That looks like witchcraft, sorcery, uh, magic. That looks like um, incorporating into my worship of God things that belong to other religions. That means if I follow another religion, I'm being uh, led astray, I'm worshiping other gods, little g. Anytime I let um, New Age or Eastern uh, thinking creep into my understanding of who God is and how he reveals himself, I am following other gods. It's, it's all around us, all around us, right? So Moses issues a caution. Be careful that you don't, you don't have someone among you who hears the words of the covenant and they follow other gods. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's quite a picture. And what is that root that bears poisonous and bitter fruit? It's the one who, verse 19, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant. Now that phrase, by the way, we saw it back here. I didn't highlight it, but it's down here in verse four. Sworn covenant. And again here, sworn covenant. English translations do what they can to make it make sense. The word here for sworn is curses. The word here for sworn is curses. 
Chapter 27, chapter 28, we saw a lot of curses. What this phrase means and what it's trying to capture is this is a covenant that is guarded by curses. This is a covenant guarded by curses. So verse 19, the one who hears the words of this covenant that's guarded by curses blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe. Safe from what? Safe from the curses. Though I walk in stubbornness in my heart. Do you see the picture? I hear all this covenant. I'm standing here today. I hear all the blessings and the curses. And, and even though I hear that I'm going to go off and worship other gods, I'm going to follow after them. I'm going to do what I think is best and what's right in my own eyes. And I pride myself. I even praise myself for how wise and how enlightened I am as compared to everyone else who's antiquated and following ancient books. Do you catch my drift? Okay. And then I'm going to say, I'm part of the covenant. I'm part of the covenant people. I'm a, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm going to be safe from this. That's the folly. And it followed them all the way up into Jesus' day where Jesus even addressed it and says, just because you claim that your father's Abraham does not mean you know your father, God. It's entirely possible to be among people and to belong to a community of faith and to all the while inside pride yourselves in the way you live, pride yourself, bless yourself, praise yourself about how wise or how enlightened you are that you figured some things out that nobody else has figured out or that you're living in such a way that nobody else is living and all the while thinking, I'm gonna be safe in my rebellion. I'm gonna be safe in my disobedience. I've got fire insurance. It'll be covered. That's, that's what they're warning against. All right, we're going to fly through these parts here because we're at the end here. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and jealousy will smoke against that man. The curses written in this book will settle upon him. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with the, all the curses of the covenant written in this book. One comment on this, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. I think Paul probably picks up on this theme in Romans 9 when he says, not all Israel is Israel. You claim to be a part of the covenant, but if you then disobey, that disobedience, that rebellion that we just described is revealing that you lack understanding. Okay, so not all Israel is Israel. You might claim to belong, but you didn't really belong. That's up for discussion, though. Verse 22, he talks about this next generation. What God will do to that person is going to leave the next generation going, what happened here? And they're going to say they forsook their God. We keep going. Verse 25, the people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshiped them. Okay, that would be the reason. And then we get this verse as we wrap it up. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may know, uh, that, may, that we may do all the words of this law. And Torah is what's behind that. Because again, Deuteronomy is not just law. There is some law in there. There's story, history. There is narrative. There is um, some stipulations, regulations. There's instructions. It's all of that, right? Our tendency 
is to forsake the things that God has revealed and say, I'm going to press into God and I want to know some things he didn't reveal. I want to get that higher enlightened truth. I want to go a little, a little higher. I, I want that special knowledge that God only gives to a few. That's our, that's our we're, we're drawn in by that kind of thing. And yet what Moses says, those secret things, the things that God has not revealed, those belong to him. But he's revealed things. The things that he has revealed, they belong to us, to our children and those that, that come after us. And the reason they belong to us and the reason that he revealed them is that we might do them. Right? And so here's the thing. So when we think about the Torah, when we think about, let me, let me break this down real quick. When we think about the first five books of our Bible, which is strictly called the Torah, in Greek it's Pentateuch, it's the foundation of the rest of all your scriptures. Because after you get past Deuteronomy, what you start to see is history books describing how the people who have, God has made a covenant with live out faithful obedience to that covenant or disobey. And the blessings and the curses come upon them. You see it played out. You have prophets. You have prophets who are calling the people back when they disobey to the, to the covenant of God, warning them of the curses that will come. You have things like Psalms and Proverbs that are, that are celebrating and meditating on um, the, the goodness of God's Torah, his law, right? Depending on your translation. You, you have um, the wisdom of God being displayed in his Torah. You keep going, you get to the New Testament and the Messiah, Jesus, comes on the scene. He comes to explain it, to do it, and to correct misunderstandings of it. So, so he, he's doing that throughout the book of Matthew and, the, and the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And then he dies a death uh, uh, of, as an innocent man. He dies a death. He's a death so that he could be the sacrifice for the rebellion that brought death. There was no sacrifice for high-handed rebellion under the covenant. There was no sacrifice for high-handed, deliberate rebellion under the covenant. When Adam rebelled, it brought death to all people. There was no sacrifice that remedied death. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, comes, the Passover Lamb of God comes, and he dies a death so that in his sacrifice, once for all, it could deal with the death problem. Right? So that people can be freed from death. Do you remember I told you God's Torah is about life. His covenants are about life. And so when the Messiah comes and he is fulfilling the Torah and he's fulfilling the covenants and he's pointing people to it, correcting misunderstandings of it, and then he dies a death as the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb, he frees people who enter that covenant from death. This is the only sacrifice that can bring life. It's not about death, it's about life, right? And so then he raises from the dead to a new type of life, a spiritual life, which he now gives to those who embrace the covenant of God, who now come to him, the new covenant mediator, Jesus, by faith in what he's done. And then we receive the promise of the spirit and the, and the blessings that come with that. And so when I say, um, at the beginning here, when I said, oh, I did have Matthew 7. Keeping covenant with Yahweh is how we experience life. I come to him, I come to the mediator of the covenant, the one who, who makes the covenant between us and God. I come to him, Jesus, by faith, and I obey the instructions of God, and I experience the life that he gives. When I disobey the instructions of God, I experience the death that comes with that. 
I may not experience condemnation if I'm in Christ, but I will experience the death, the, the, the sicknesses, the diseases, the, the catastrophes in my life, things, mental, mental things happening, physical and circumstantial things. I will experience all of that because I'm not living based on the wisdom of God anymore. I'm not living based on what brings life. I'm living on a path that brings death. But keeping covenant with Yahweh is how we experience life, and that's what he desires for us. God is a God who gives life because death was not his idea. It was not his making or doing. He is reversing death through his kingdom and covenants. That's what we're seeing. So Father, would you let your spirit now come and give us understanding that we might not hear your word and walk away praising ourselves, priding ourselves, blessing ourselves inwardly, thinking that we've got it when maybe we don't. And so would you give us understanding, what does it look like to live in covenant with you? What does it look like to live in a relationship with you? What does it look like to keep that covenant, to live in faithful obedience to you from a place of faith? God, there's some in this room who maybe this morning you're showing them that their attempts to try to earn righteous standing before you, their attempts to try to, uh, to, to, to have an experience life, the type of life that you give, they're basing it all on their own efforts. They're basing it all on their own works of obedience, devoid of the Spirit, devoid of understanding, devoid of faith. Show them this morning what you've done for them in Jesus that they might come to him by faith this morning, that they might then receive the life that you give and the freedom from death, that they might receive the promised Holy Spirit, sealing them until the day of redemption, baptizing them, joining them to the body of Christ. Um, here in just a moment, we're gonna dismiss, but if I have a few prayer team members who can grab some lanyards and make your way up front, we'll have a few people available for you right after the service to pray with you about anything you have, whether that's um, stuff that came up in the sermon, um, wanna have a better understanding of what it means to trust in Jesus, whether that's I've got some sicknesses, diseases I'd like somebody to pray for, work, whatever. They're there to pray with you for all that. And prayer team, you guys can go ahead and make your way up front. And so Father, as we depart from here, may you bless us and keep us. May you make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May you lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace. Amen. See you guys next week.